speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, yesterday was July the 4th, uh, Independence Day here in the United States, a day we celebrate our nation's founding by remembering the signing of a document. Uh, because this nation was founded on an idea, a belief in an ideal, a conviction about a philosophy, a philosophy of life and a philosophy of civil government, but in a world that has lost its mind over politics. I thought it might be worthwhile to take a few minutes this morning to reestablish for you very briefly a biblical understanding of the role and purpose of civil government. So as you're able, just to get us focused and moving, would you stand with me, please, in honor of the Word of God? And we're going to read together just to get focused and moving, Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. Matthew chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. If you're with me here in the church building, I'll read the plain text. If you're joining me in reading the highlighted portions, if you're joining us over our YouTube channel, just read the whole passage as it pops up there on your screen. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 8, this is Jesus speaking, and this is what the Bible says. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, this, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus calls you to a ruthless sort of righteousness. He calls you to get rid of anything and everything that might possibly cause you to sin, even seemingly good things, even seemingly necessary things, things like, well, I don't know, your hand or your eye. Certainly this exhortation must apply then to mindsets or understandings that are not biblical, worldly ways of looking at things, worldly ways of thinking about things absolutely need to go, even if they're common, even if they're popular, even if they make you feel good. And that includes worldly ways of thinking about government. The very concept of government is about the appropriate exercise of legitimate authority to direct and sometimes to control the affairs of people or institutions or even entire nations. Government, therefore, is all about authority. It's about the right to direct or control or decide or to do stuff. But you need to understand there is a difference between power and authority. Power is the ability it's the brute force, the sheer might and capacity to do things. Whereas authority is the right, the legitimate leave and sanction and authorization to do them. Think of it this way. A person with a semi-automatic weapon may well have the power to make you do any number of things that he does not have the authority to do. On the other hand, a police officer has the authority to make you stop your car even if she's standing unarmed in the street. 
Clearly, in the second scenario, you have far more power in your moving vehicle than that officer has just standing there with her hands up. But because of her legitimate authority, you stop the car anyway. Government then is about authority. It's never supposed to be about raw power. That can get confusing since all legitimate authority is backed up by some form of power. For example, as a dad, I have the authority to tell my children when to go to bed. And if they ignore that authority, I can demonstrate the power behind it by uh, taking away privileges or doling out consequences. To understand government correctly, you have to begin with God. Because all authority belongs to God. All authority begins with God. All authority comes from God because God is the creator, the maker of all things. He has all authority. But authority can and often is parceled out to others. Again, for example, I have the right to tell my kids when to go to bed. But when Melissa and I go out or when we're away, we often put one of the older children in charge to, uh, in our place. In other, in other words, we give them a portion of our parental authority so they can act in our stead. When Jesus taught and worked miracles, among the questions frequently asked of him by the Jewish rulers were the questions, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? I want you to notice that the chief priests and the elders understood that for authority to be legitimate, it has to come from a legitimate source. And they also understood that legitimate authority can be given or parceled out to others. This then is the key to understanding the legitimate authority of any government. Legitimate authority only comes from someone with legitimate authority. And that means all authority in this world is delegated authority, parceled out by the owner for the purposes of the owner. So again, if Melissa and I go out on a date and say, for instance, we leave Will in charge of the house, he only has legitimate authority to do or require the sorts of things Melissa and I would want done or required. If he tries instead to make his siblings do something bad, to do something we would not want done, then he has violated the most fundamental principle of authority, the most fundamental principle of government. And when Melissa and I get home and Aaron tells on him, because Aaron always tells, Will's going to get in trouble. So what's the point? The point is that God has in His grace parceled out some of His own authority to people in this world, to bless and to help people in this world. And with that delegated authority, God has established different forms or types of government. There's self-government, wherein people make decisions for themselves about the directions 
of their lives. There's family government, where parents make decisions to guide and direct the lives of their children. There's ecclesiastical or church government, where elders and and pastors and the like lead and direct the affairs of the church. There's civil government, wherein kings or princes or governors or mayors or parliaments or congresses make decisions and enforce laws that impact the people under their control. And a biblical understanding of all those various forms of government means that the leaders in each of those situations, the self, the parents, the elders, the the governors or mayors or congresses, only have the authority delegated to them by God. And that only to serve God and the purposes of God. It was precisely this understanding of government as being built on delegated authority from God that led the Apostle Paul to write, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now just to clarify a frequent point of confusion, Paul is not saying in this verse that every person who ends up in a position of authority was therefore God's choice. Governmental authority and the concept of governmental authority has been established by God himself. The individual people who step into that authority, however, may or may not be people of whom God approves. As a result, when bad people get into government, when they step into legitimate positions of authority, they often abuse those positions, mishandling the authority they've stepped into, doing the things they want rather than the things God wants. That's why the psalmist warns in Psalm 2, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's also why the prophet Isaiah warns in Isaiah 10, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees. The authority for government comes from God, and it's supposed to serve the will of God. Twice, in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, twice in this one verse, the Apostle Paul refers to civil governmental leaders as servants of God. Whether they knew him or not, they have received authority from him to bless and reward those who do good and to punish those who do wrong. The Apostle Peter says essentially the exact same thing in 1 Peter 2.14. And it's definitely worth noting that the rulers referred to by both Paul and Peter in these passages are not the rulers of ancient Israel. They're not the rulers of the church. They are the pagan rulers of the early Roman Empire. In other words, Christian ruler or not, the design and the plan and the expectation of God 
is that people in government use their authority to please him and accomplish his will. So when you think about politics and when you think about government in the days to come, you need to think clearly about this issue of authority. And you need to ask yourself often, is what's being talked about by this particular candidate, is what's being talked about by this particular government official a legitimate biblical use of governing authority? Third, does it lie within the bounds of the authority? And second, does it honor the will and the word of God? Regarding the bounds of authority, for instance, once again, if as a parent, I try to set the bedtimes for your children, I'm doing something outside the jurisdiction of my legitimate parental authority. And the exact same thing is true for any civil government that attempts to tell the church whom it must marry, or that attempts to tell parents how they must educate their children, or that attempts to tell individuals what they can think or believe or in many cases say. In other words, in the civil government, it is important that the civil government not intrude on the legitimate authority of self-government, family government, and ecclesiastical government and the like. The problem is that civil government has a long and terrifying history of doing exactly that. Civil government has a tendency to exceed and abuse its legitimate authority. And it's easy for civil government to do that because of the power issue I spoke of earlier. The Bible is clear. Civil government should be treated with respect, but it also should be approached with caution because outside of the direct intervention of God himself, no other form of government has so much raw power and therefore so much potential for overreach and abuse. This nation was founded on a concern about the power of the state. That's why we have a Bill of Rights, to keep the state from interfering with your thoughts and your beliefs and your speech and your worship and your associations, to keep the state from exercising exclusive control over firearms, to keep the state from centralizing too much power in the central federal government. Remember, in terms of raw power, the state controls the armies and the police. It can take away your freedom and throw you in jail. It can tax you into oblivion. It can fine you into the poorhouse. These are tremendous and terrifying powers. Powers that can easily destroy lives and livelihoods. Powers that used by the wrong people or for the wrong reasons can crush individuals and even entire groups of people. You need to be very cautious about whom you give such power to. Because with that kind of raw power behind you, it's easy to abuse your authority. And never forget, listen to me, never forget, the more things you ask the civil government to do, 
the more power and money you must give it to do that. Finally, I want to switch gears here as I get ready to close for the last few minutes. I want to try to address very briefly, in the context of our study of Matthew chapter 18, how to love people well, I want to attempt to address in that context one of the thorniest issues facing our nation today, the issue of race and racial justice. And I want to do this because I genuinely believe in this area, the church in America has largely failed to love others well. And I believe our failure has empowered a great deal of the nonsense and chaos you are seeing in the streets. But I also believe we have power and authority from God himself to step into this mess and bring hope and healing. So looking again at Matthew chapter 18, listen to these words from Jesus that Pastor Matt talked to you about two weeks ago. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I want to apply this passage this morning prophetically to the situation we see in our country today. And in doing so, I want to suggest to you that not only have we failed repeatedly to apply this passage in our personal lives, but that we have failed as the people of God to apply it on a national scale. The love principle within this passage begins, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. And I believe for years now, Many in the minority community have tried to do exactly that. They've spoken persistently, often imploringly, about myriad inequities and injustices related to race in this nation. Now, without a doubt, some have spoken angrily and violently. And some of the efforts to show us our fault have been undeniably wildly counterproductive to fostering dialogue and understanding and loving resolution. That's not okay. No matter how much you may sympathize with the cause, the truth is many of the tactics employed to get people's attention in this matter have been wrong and sinful. And it would be dishonest to deny they've been wrong and sinful. But I believe the real love problem for the church is that so few, especially white conservative Christians, have been willing to listen. So few have loved well enough to care and to consider the possibility that some of what's being shared is true. People came to us to show us our fault, and we poo-pooed it and went on our way. When they came graciously and biblically, we simply refused to listen. And when they came angrily and violently, 
with rioting and whatnot, we used it as an excuse to further plug our ears. The church, at least the white conservative evangelical church, has largely failed to love our minority neighbors well. We've refused to listen to reasonable appeals, and we have despised and looked down on those who came with unreasonable ways. And after over a month in Matthew chapter 18, I hope you've heard enough to know it's time to repent. And know that does not mean you have to give in to radical leftist political nonsense, to the eradication of our history or of our police or of our historic institutions. But it does mean we need to listen and to pray. It does mean we need to take some steps to reach out and try to understand that sometimes it really is hard to be a minority in a majority culture. And that many people in America still genuinely are biased. It means we need to ask the Lord, how do we as the people of God take up our authority and our power, the power of love, the power of forgiveness, the power of the gospel, and how do we step in, not with the brute force of civil government, but with the love of God and the character of Jesus to begin to make a real difference in the situation. It's going to take Jesus and people who genuinely follow Jesus. It's going to take people who know how to love others well. And I pray God is making you and me that people. Let's pray. Father, as always, we thank you for the power and the clarity of your word. Your word by which we're instructed, your word by which we're corrected, your word by which we are directed. Lord, your word that shows us who you are and how you want things to be and who you've called us to be and empowered us to be through the gospel, through Jesus and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Father, help us to think like Christians about every aspect of life. Money and government and politics, help us think like Christians. And Father, help us bring hope and healing into the sins and the issues that are dividing our nation. Help us love others well. Help us apply your word to the real world all around us. Help us represent you in ways that make a difference. Change us and change the world through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.